I love a good mystery, and so does everyone else. In fact, everyone loves a good family mystery, especially one with as many twists and turns as June's Journey. I know that our listeners will absolutely love this game because you are uncovering the mystery of June's sister's murder, and you're becoming a detective. You're looking for clues, and each scene will lead you to a new thrilling storyline. This is a great way to engage your observation skills to uncover key pieces of information that lead you on to many chapters of mystery, danger, and romance. Right now, I'm in the process of interviewing family members, and this is bringing me back, just so you know, to my days in law enforcement, and I'm having such a blast with it because it is so much more lighthearted, but it also has the mystery of where will this take me? You can even chat and play with or against other players by joining a detective club. You'll even get the chance to play in a detective league to put your skills to the test. Megan, I think we should join a detective club together. We've got this. (laughs) Can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. June needs your help, detective. Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. This podcast may contain content that is graphic and disturbing in nature. Listener discretion is advised. A frantic 911 call from a wife brings paramedics to a home where her husband had apparently died from a drug overdose. But this woman was no stranger to the authorities, and her husband's death would prove key to unlocking a much bigger mystery. This is the Kelly Cochran episode. was the Innocence Conference. It was amazing. I know how much you were looking forward to it. Oh my God. Every time I go to this conference, I leave with like a new like pep in my step. And I just like can't wait to get to work. I don't know what I'm doing. I'm going to do something. (laughs) Right, 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 right. And did you see some of our friends there? Some people we know? I saw Amanda. Oh, okay. And I saw Maggie. Oh. And I saw some of our fellow researchers. I saw Jessica Henry. Jessica Henry. Yes, I saw some research friends. What a great bunch. Yeah. I'm so glad that you got to go to that conference. I know how much you missed it. I know. I'm excited. I would love for you to come one time. I will absolutely. You could be my plus one. I'm going (laughs) to. Okay. Thank you. Okay. Well, I'm so glad that you were able to go. And I connected with some other fellow podcasters and we'll be doing some cool collaborations coming up. Can't wait. Yeah. Great job, Amy. So today's case was suggested by plenty of listeners. And wow, what a case and a lot for us to discuss on theory. Have you heard of Kelly Cochran? I have not. I think when you hear the details, you, you'll, it'll strike a familiar chord. Okay. We're going to have a lot to discuss on theory. Before we get to today's case, we would like to thank some of our supporters. So we have quite a few today to thank, Amy. We're very lucky. Thank you so much to Michelle C. from Lodi, Nicole, Brie Krantz, and Sally. But her wife is also a listener who calls her fun size (laughs) since she's just (laughs) over five feet tall. (laughs) That's so cute. I mean, I'm barely over five feet tall also. I also want to thank one more person personally. My good friend, one of my dearest friends, Christy, became a patron. And she also, I know, it's nice when our friends become. She's a fan. And she also just got accepted into a very good nursing program. (gasps) And I'm so proud of her. Oh, congratulations. Yeah, thank you. And who else do we have, Amy? So we have Gabe from the Blue Mountains, Megan, but I don't know if that's the Blue Mountains in the United States or the Blue Mountains in Australia, but either way, welcome. Yeah, Gabe, just let us know. We (laughs) love our fans from Australia, too. (laughs) Yes. We also have Lindsay Lorang, Priscilla, whose nickname is Sil. We have Kristen and her boyfriend, Scott, who just graduated law school and is working for the county public defender's office. Yay. Yay. That's awesome. Congratulations. 
And lastly, we have Emily, who listens with her nine-year-old daughter, Kaylin Ray, and she says her daughter is a mini criminologist in the making. And they are from Sour Lake, Texas. Wow. Well, I will say that I watched crime shows with my mom at an early age, too. And yes. it's what it's actually how I became interested in the field. Yes. So. How awesome is that? Well, thank you all so much. It's so great to have people listening with their loved ones. And we love hearing from you all. Thank you so much, everyone. And just want to point out that other than becoming a patron, there are many ways you can support the show. You can follow us wherever you listen to our podcast so that you get notified when we release new shows. You can leave us a review. You can share us on social media, tell a friend, any number of ways you can help support us. And we appreciate them all. Megan, before you get into today's episode, I have something exciting to share. We're trying out something new for Patreon. Okay. We've gotten a lot of requests, Megan. What's our number one request? Can we please take a class? How can we take a class with you? Well, now you can. We're going to try out something new. So for our $10 and up tiers, we will have our first mini class on May 12th, 11 a.m. I am going to be hosting a Zoom class the same way I teach my classes on campus. And what are you going to be talking about? I will be talking about, I'm going to start, I think, with my lecture on the process of justice. Okay, so that's like from basically arrest all the way through the process till the end. This is a section I cover in my intro to criminology and criminal justice class. Of course. And it's one of my students' favorites, so I thought this would be a good place to start. I think it's great. You know, if I'm free, I'll be there. And Amy, what happens if someone can't come on May 12th at 11, but they really want your lecture? That's a good point because we have a lot of international listeners and that might be like three in the morning and I don't expect you to come. So we just want to let those patrons know that this class will also be recorded and would will be made available through Patreon to all of you at a later time. So you can watch at a time that is more convenient for you if you can attend. Yes, I can't wait. So if you want to join us, then uh, we look forward to seeing you. All right. Thanks, Amy, so much. But Amy, I don't want to keep you waiting anymore from this week's episode, The Kelly Cochran Story. Kelly Cochran grew up in small town Maryville, Indiana. She appeared to have acted out a lot in her teenage years, and her mother said that she tried to raise her with, quote, tough love, but eventually she had to put Kelly in a girl's home due to her bad behavior. And I don't think this was a very long time. It was maybe like a year or two. Nevertheless, Kelly stayed in touch with her next door neighbor, Jason Keegan, and eventually the pair wound up dating. So that's how I know she wasn't also in this, you know, home forever. I think it was just during some of those rough teenage years. Eventually, she started dating Jason and when she was in high school, and they would get married shortly after at a Methodist church that was local to them. They remained in Indiana until 2014, and at that point, they relocated to the Upper Peninsula of Michigan next to Ottawa National Forest. It's a very remote escape from the city, and I mean very rural and very remote. Just keep that in mind. As an adult, Kelly was described as very friendly and very talkative. Kelly was well-liked at work, but at home, things were different. Co-workers would recall that Kelly had mentioned problems with her husband. And in fact, she claimed that her husband, Jason, tried to kill her at one point and threatened suicide to follow. Even from the outside, it seemed like to others that Kelly and her husband, Jason, were involved in a volatile relationship, though it was unclear as to the cause. But in late 2014, it would become clear to everyone. The first clue occurred in late October 2014, when Terry O'Donnell reported her ex-boyfriend, Chris Regan, a 53-year-old Upper Peninsula resident, missing. Terry and Chris originally met in the 1980s, in high school, I think, but they didn't begin dating until several decades later, when each of them divorced their respective partners. And at that point, they began a long-distance relationship for about, I'd say about a year and a half before they decided to part ways. But they remained on good terms, and Terry still cared a lot for Chris, and they stayed in contact. Chris had been making plans, however, to move from Indiana to Asheville, North Carolina. Do you know Asheville? No, but I hear it's lovely there. Uh, It is. So my brother lived there. It is so nice. Okay, so he's making these plans, but Terry noticed that he'd kind of gone out of contact, and she thought he went missing. So Terry went to the police and reported Chris missing. The police asked if she could get into his home. Would they, you know, would she let them in? And so she took the police to Chris Regan's apartment and it seemed to her disheveled, like he hadn't been there, but he was in the process of moving. So it could be disheveled. But she said it didn't look how he would leave the house. She said just by the sight of the house, she knew something instantly was wrong because she knew him. 
Chris's car was later found at a nearby park and ride, having been there for over two weeks, which was very suspicious to everyone that he would leave his car at this, you know, commuter kind of hub for two weeks. Detectives were brought in to investigate. They suspected Terry, jealous of other women Chris was involved with, might have had a motive to harm Chris. But the police chief, Laura Frizzo, disagreed. She believed Terry was genuinely panicked about Chris's disappearance and did not have any involvement. Now, police chiefs aren't always closely involved in every case, but this being a small town, Chief Frizzo would become a central player in this investigation. I think there was only four people in the department. Wow. Yeah. I told you it was remote and small. So they probably aren't used to cases of people going missing or foul play. Absolutely not. I don't think so. So police found other persons of interest, too. There was this man that Chris had hired but didn't do a good job. And then there were some co-workers where Chris worked. He worked for the Oldenburg Group, a military manufacturing company. But what really came, what really emerged from speaking to his co-workers and colleagues was that Chris was romantically involved with another employee named Kelly Cochran, a married woman. So police have a good lead now. When they visit Kelly's house, her husband Jason answers the door. He lies about his wife not being home, adamantly says she's not home. And then, you know, a couple minutes later, Kelly comes to the door and she seems completely different. He seems aloof and just get out. I don't, you know, I don't know anything. She seems very friendly, very willing to help. So investigators thought that her husband's behavior raised red flags, Uh but she seemed okay. Mm -hmm. Kelly told the police that she had not seen Chris Regan since around October 14th or 15th and that she had tried to call him to no avail. So did they out her affair in front of her husband or they just said it was a co-worker? Kelly openly admitted having a relationship with Chris in front of her husband and Jason did not react, they said, at all to this information, which struck officers. Maybe they had an open marriage? Right. I mean, they just thought it was weird that she was talking like this in front of her husband, Mm -hmm. but nobody knew yet the relationship. Kelly showed concern for Chris and seemed genuinely sad because she believed he moved away without saying goodbye. So police left with their suspicions and they informed Chief Frizzo that something just wasn't quite right with this couple. So Chief Frizzo invited the couple in for questioning on October 28th. Kelly was friendly and happy to talk to police without a lawyer while Chief Frizzo observed. Now, I'm not clear why she observed and was not leading the questioning herself at that time, but she would later on, and she would become central to this investigation in many ways. Kelly said that she and Chris had dinner about two weeks prior, and that was the last time she saw him. Prior to that, she said that she saw him several times a week for dinner, and then they would spend the night together. So I'm assuming her husband had to know something was going on. Yeah, her husband knew. Yeah, Yeah. And we'll discuss the nature of how that evolved as well, so you can hold on to that, but he did. Kelly said that she loved Chris and that her husband knew about Chris because she told him she was open with him. Her explanation was that Jason had cancer or had had cancer at one point. He was in a lot of physical pain. He was unable to do much physically. Um, He became very depressed and it kind of led to their separation. And it was during that time that Kelly would begin this affair with Chris and Kelly saw other men as well. Kelly was seeing another one of her colleagues, and allegedly, these three men were all aware of the relationship she was having. Who's the three men, though? The husband, two co-workers, and, okay, got it. Yeah. But would Jason have anything different to say during his interview? Now, Jason began the interview telling the police that he suffered a lot of anxiety, for which he saw a therapist, and then he quickly started sobbing, they said, like seriously sobbing. So this is completely different than the interview they just experienced with Kelly. Chief Frizzo said she right away thought this was very odd and very suspicious. Jason admitted that he knew about Kelly's affairs. He said he was not happy about them, but he did not want a divorce from Kelly. Jason said that he couldn't work or have sexual relations with his wife when he got sick, but Kelly stayed with him, and so he agreed to let her have other relationships since he could not satisfy her anymore. Jason did admit to being suicidal in the past, but he said that he never threatened to harm Kelly in any way. Jason said that he also knew Chris Regan's name, but he couldn't identify him by sight, couldn't pick him out from a lineup. Mm -hmm. Police asked Jason point blank if he killed Chris, and he said he had not done anything to Chris Regan. But the investigation would go on from there. So further investigation confirmed that not only was Jason upset about Kelly cheating and they weren't really separated, but he had been sending her text messages to this point. The text messages revealed that it was more serious. He was much more upset about it than he would reveal. Lynn and Curtis Hull, 
their mother and son were on Kelly's cell phone records, so police went to visit them as well, trying to get information. They knew Kelly from work and reported hearing that her husband Jason was very obsessive, controlling, and jealous, that he was an abuser and Kelly had to get out of the relationship. Is this important or not? I think James had even asked me, like, why is this here? It could possibly go towards motive if Jason was the very jealous type. Yeah. It's also just showing that things aren't matching up, right? No, no. It's just... Yeah. We have different stories Mm -hmm. coming from both parties. So Chief Frizzo went to the Cochran's home again on November 14th to speak with them, asking them if they would go to the station individually. So Jason willingly went first while Kelly waited behind. Their first interrogation or their first question was separate or together? They were questioned separately. They were, okay. Never questioned together. Gotcha. This was actually a good plan, though. Chief Frizzo wanted to catch them by surprise and separate them. This is a good strategic move. Without them having time to... Exactly. Mm -hmm. So Jason went right away, but Kelly was at home. So no communication between Mm -hmm. them. So this is a good strategy. Mm -hmm. Jason said, you know, they continued to talk without lawyers. Jason said that Kelly went out almost every night and it upset him very much and made him feel suicidal. So he's revealing more information here. He also said that he was hearing voices and became delusional, but he was surprised to hear that Kelly had told police that he wanted to kill her. He said that he never said that and he never would harm his wife of 13 years. He also said that he walked on trails a lot near his house and he once saw Kelly's truck parked at Chris's apartment. But Chris's house was like way off the beaten path of the trail that he said he was walking And Jason could not have just passed by that house accidentally. So this was also a red flag because he said he didn't know Chris Regan. So now he knows where he lives. Yeah. Yeah. And does he did he stumble upon it accidentally? Because, I mean, what he said was, you know, he I accidentally walked by this house and I saw a truck there. So I knew this must have been Chris's house. Well, how do you even know it was Chris's if she was seeing other men? too? Couldn't it have been someone Mm -hmm. else? So another red flag here. Jason still claimed, however, though, not to know Chris in person. He said he did not know where Chris lived prior to this. But, you know, this was the logical conclusion that he drew. I can't wait to hear who did it. It's definitely one of them. I just don't know which one. This one's kind of a nail biter in this way. Next, Chief Frizzo spoke to Kelly, who refused a lie detector test, but otherwise cooperated with questioning again. And I think this is the third time they're speaking to her. It was around this time that Chris's son, Chris Regan Jr., contacted the police. He was worried about his father as well. They were just reconnecting after a long estrangement. And he said that his father was excited about the fact that they were going to move in together in North Carolina and restart their relationship. In January 2015, he went up to Iron River, which is part of the peninsula, to clean out his father's apartment and meet with Chief Frizzo. You know, the investigation is going along. It's been a couple of months. Chris Jr. is worried about his father, what's happening. So next, the police interview Eric Erickson. He was this third. Yeah, Eric Erickson. (laughs) Okay. This was the third man that Kelly was seeing. He had moved back up to the Upper Peninsula after serving in the military. He worked under Chris Regan at the Oldenburg Group, and he and Kelly began an affair in September of 2014. And in fact, Eric had even admitted to taking Kelly to that park and ride where Chris Regan's car was found. Remember that? So was it possible now that Eric is actually a suspect? I mean, we're now talking about, you know, it was his supervisor. They're both having an affair. He's the one who knows the park and ride. Kelly and Eric had met at that spot just two days before Chris vanished. And Eric was willing to share his text messages. He volunteered to take a lie detector, which he subsequently passed, and he was cleared as a suspect. Another colleague of Chris's, uh, Chris Regan, Art Johnson, told the police that Chris was very mad at Kelly for having told people that she was seeing him because he wanted to keep this private at work. But did this have anything to do with Chris's disappearance? You'll have to wait and see, Amy. Now, Chief Frizzo wasn't getting much help. She had asked for some help from outside investigators because with the limited resources and a department of four, she needed it. But the outside investigators didn't think that much was suspicious with the Cochrans. They were dismissive. She, she was the one who was leading the charge here, and they didn't see it. But she was able to get a search warrant for their home despite this. And in March 2015, based on inconsistencies in their statements and these contradicting stories, they got the search warrant and searched the home. So what would the home reveal? The pair had a lot of swords and knives. I don't really understand this, to be honest, but they had a collection of bows, arrows, darts, 
And they had firearms. Okay, but it's legal. Yes. Okay. I, I, I just don't understand the swords yeah. and knives. That I guess that just never appealed to me. It also appeared that Kelly and Jason had been remodeling, and they had painted over a lot of rooms, which, of course, made it seem to the police like maybe they were trying to hide something. Did it also smell of bleach? That was a good question. <laughs> Crime lab technicians also came to the house finding blood on the ceiling of their living room after reacting with luminol. It, I guess it's shown mm -hmm. through the paint. Okay. They saw cast-offs specifically. And for people who don't know what cast-off is, these are like blood droplets that are flung or mm -hmm. cast off an object in motion containing blood on it. A ceiling is where you would expect it to be? Yeah, wall ceilings, you know, mm -hmm. that you're going to find spatter. But pretty much you could find it anywhere. And while the search revealed some interesting findings, analysis of the evidence was needed before making an arrest. So, you know, the Cochrans were not arrested that day. And what happened following the search? Well, they disappeared the I was very just going to say... That's funny you said that because I was wondering if the Cochrans knew that they were searching the house, but there's no arrest warrant or anything. They're out of there. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh, they packed it up and left. Um, the neighbors, their neighbors, who basically they had spent the day with while police were searching their house, told the police that Kelly and Jason were very nervous while the search was going on. Now, in fairness, I would be very nervous if someone was searching my home, too, even if I didn't have anything to hide. Yeah. I mean, so I don't know. It's that a high stress situation. Exactly. Okay. Those same neighbors, the sailors, had some more damning information, though, claiming to have heard gunshots from Kelly and Jason's house around the time Chris vanished. They, it sounds like they probably shot guns for sport, right? But they had quite a collection. Well, let me tell you what else they heard. Okay. They also heard power tools for this remodel at very odd hours of the oh, night and no. early morning, like sanders and other loud machinery, but only in the off hours where most people were sleeping. Hmm. So that's also a little strange, but maybe you say, hey, they're working, you know, night owls. That's probably when I do my remodeling. But what were they actually doing? Were they remodeling or did they, did something happen in the home? Did they shoot Chris Regan? Further, power tools. Is it possible that there's a dismemberment in the home here? The sailors then revealed some further damning information. I guess these neighbors were just, yeah. you know, wealth of information. This part, I don't think anyone's going to appreciate, um, but I'm just going to say it. They said that Jason and Kelly had invited them to a barbecue two days after Chris went missing and that it was very odd because they never invited anyone over. But they also reported that the meat they served was transparent-like and unlike any meat they had eaten before. <gasps> and yeah, they, they wondered if they had been fed dismembered body parts. They wondered if they had consumed part of Chris Regan. Why would you keep eating it? I guess at the time, why would anyone suspect that you're eating human flesh? Maybe they were just trying to be polite. I don't know. Oh, my God. Please tell me it was confirmed or not confirmed that that was the case. Ugh, I don't want to know. Never mind. I, I okay, just, can't exactly okay. speak to that at this okay. moment. But okay. I think we can draw conclusions later about that. But, yeah, I mean, this is this is very upsetting. And I have to tell you, I watched a documentary on this. It was called Dead North. And the listener who suggested it suggested the documentary because I was like, where can I find out about this? One of the neighbors was actually on the documentary talking about the effect that this has had on his life because he was at the barbecue. And he's, I mean, it's like destroyed him in many ways, thinking that he ate part of a, a person, yeah. you know, really, yeah. you could really see like how it destroys me just hearing it. Yeah. I couldn't imagine. He's, he was very tormented. I oh. felt very bad when I was watching that. Unfortunately, the lab results could only identify that it was blood on the ceiling, but not wh whose blood. Like they could say it was blood, but we don't know whose it is. But a second search revealed more blood in the house. And this was after the Cochrans had vanished. They also recovered notes written by Jason while he was hospitalized in a psychiatric facility. And this was just before Chris Regan had vanished. It was like a book or journal, and it had different chapters that were very, very dark and seemingly alarming, like violent ideologies and scenarios and violent thoughts. But they weren't evidence of a specific crime, and they didn't contain any specific information pointing to a crime against Chris Regan. But they're starting to get the picture that Jason is a very violent thoughts. The Cochrans weren't gone for long, though, because they were discovered by private investigators hired by Chief Frizzo, who had placed a GPS tracker on the Cochrans' vehicle. So she probably thought they may flee, right? Yeah, I think so. She, she She's badass. She, you yeah. know what? I, she came off as a badass to me when I watched the documentary as well. So they were traced to their, they went home. They went to Hobart, Indiana, which was right near where they, you know, basically where they grew up. With the help of the Indiana police, a DNA search warrant was served on Jason, and he was brought into the Hobart police station, 
where Chief Frizzo was waiting, and she began her plan to try to get Jason to give up information and turn on Kelly. What do you mean a DNA search warrant? Oh, a search warrant to collect DNA from Emma Swab. But why would they be collecting DNA? Do they have something to match it to? Or why are they collecting DNA from? I guess they wanted to figure out the blood in the house, too. Okay. I don't know. I think think they wanted to figure out blood in the house. Okay. Remember they had those droplets? They couldn't say whose it was. So maybe to eliminate him. Maybe. Maybe Mm -hmm. for later on. Um, But you've heard of DNA. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. So, you know, she thought that Jason was the weaker one and that she could get him to turn on Kelly because Kelly was stoic. And so Chief Frizzo sympathized with him. You know, she tried to blame Kelly for what happened. You know, this isn't your fault. But Jason didn't turn and he actually shut it down and asked for a lawyer. Now, Kelly had been trying to contact Jason meanwhile, but she was unable to get through. And now she was brought in next to the station because she also they had a warrant for her DNA sample as well. And Chief Frizzo tried once again to get Kelly to confess to her involvement in Chris Regan's disappearance, but she refused this time to talk at all. So they just took her DNA and ended the interview. She said, I'm done. I want a lawyer. As part of the later investigation, a search of an abandoned mine behind the Cochrane house revealed a cement block attached to a clothesline and what appeared to be a burn barrel, which apparently was used in the backyard at the Cochrane house at one point, as reported by the neighbors. There was also a fire pit in Kelly and Jason's backyard that revealed some clothing items and a blade from a reciprocating saw. (laughs) Not good. Still not enough evidence to arrest? Well, the lab results and this other evidence still didn't yield anything directly tying the Cochrane's to Chris Regan. So Chief Frizzo decided to ask the FBI for help. And they were quite helpful. They were able to backtrack Chris Regan's GPS system. It showed that Chris Regan was at the home of Kelly and Jason Cochran the night of October 14th, the last night that he was seen. So this was great. I mean, this is a huge help. FBI also found a rabbit's foot under the Cochran's home. This was reportedly belonged to Chris Regan, according to his ex-girlfriend, Terry. So, you know, not a strong Mm -hmm. link, but yet another link to him at the house. But by winter, there would be another very odd turn in what was clearly an odd case to begin with. One night in the winter of February 2016, Kelly Cochran, still in Indiana, called 911 saying that Jason was not breathing, that he was sweating and shaking, and she asked for an ambulance immediately. I'm sorry, this was, this was while the FBI was building the case still? Correct. Okay. Yes, building the case. As the medics discovered when they arrived, Jason was dead, and it looked on the surface like an accidental overdose. He was using heroin, but an investigator was assigned to look into this. And medics noted that Kelly seemed to keep getting in their way. Like, they were trying to get to him. They didn't know that he was dead. And they said it seemed like she was preventing them from trying to save Jason. Hmm. They went so far as to say that. The Hobart Police Department began looking into the death of Jason and also at the early interviews of both Jason and Kelly. All involved noted that Kelly was calm and in control always, not wavering from her position, um, had nothing to do with the disappearance. You know, but Jason was a lot rockier, they thought. Jason's autopsy revealed signs of asphyxia and strangulation. And even though he had heroin in his system, the manner of death was determined to be homicide. Mm. And with the ruling of homicide, guess who becomes the primary suspect? They were able to arrest her at this point. We'll see. Okay. Kelly became the primary suspect, of course, but investigators did not rush in because they still wanted to know what happened to Chris Regan and if they could find his remains. Would she be helpful now? So following Jason's death, Kelly was interviewed by Detective Ogden in Indiana about the circumstances surrounding Jason's demise. She said that she called 911 on the evening of Jason's death because she realized that he wasn't breathing and she was smacking him to wake him up, but it wasn't working. So then she called for help when she couldn't, you know, get him to wake up. But after a while, Ogden was talking about this, but he really wanted to get to Chris Regan and he, he pivoted at some point and he tried to appeal to her saying, you know, Jason's gone now. I think he was trying the strategy. You know, he probably did it. But you could help, like you could release his secret. Mm. So he was trying to get her to reveal the truth about what happened or just, you know, to even if it's not the truth, what happened? Is he dead? Where can we Mm -hmm. find him? But she stuck to her position about Chris and Jason. She just stayed with it. She stayed stoic and claimed that she had no idea. Meanwhile, Jason's best friend, Walt Ammerman, was really upset about Jason's death and believed Kelly was involved. So he agreed to become a confidential informant and volunteered to help the police work against Kelly. So they concocted a plan where Walt contacted Kelly 
and said that Jason had written him a letter saying that if anything happened to him, please send this note to the police. When hearing of this fictitious note, Kelly asked him, please don't send it. And sure enough, within a few days, Kelly contacted Detective Ogden asking to come in and talk to him. And on March 29th, 2016, she came into the police station and revealed that Jason had actually been the person who shot and killed Chris Regan. She said, this is her story, that Jason shot Chris in their home in the head, killing him instantly and then dismembered him. The same night she was telling the story, she left with Detective Ogden. He wanted to get in the car and go to find some of Chris's remains. Mm-hmm. Like, he was determined. Um, so they drove six hours to the Upper Peninsula of, of Michigan. Kelly took the detective to a trail where she said some of Chris's remains were. Were they trying to strike a deal with her? Like, she doesn't even know that she's under investigation for Jason's death, right? She knows. She does know. Yeah, she knows. So she's trying to get something out of this, or? What I think is that she knows that there's a note out there. She knows that it's going to be cracked. So I think she's she's appealing to Ogden had offered her an out. Like, tell us what happened. Even if you didn't do it, you're Mm -hmm. helping us. And therefore, you know, we won't look Uh at you. Um, So I think she was trying to, she's definitely trying to, you know, save herself here. So she took the detectives to this trail and then they returned to her old house where Kelly reenacted the crime and it was recorded. This is surprising because the story Kelly tells is that she and Chris were engaging in sexual activity in the downstairs area of her house, which is like the first floor, but it's by the basement door. But once she begins to lead Chris upstairs, Jason appeared from the basement shot Chris in the back of the head, and then Jason dismembered Chris in the basement. Like, he appeared out of Mm -hmm. nowhere. It seemed unlikely that Kelly did not know that Jason was in the house. You know, he didn't just jump out of nowhere. And and it seemed also odd the way she said that it would happen, but at least they were getting some information here. Chris's remains were still not found, and Kelly was not under arrest at this point. She was cooperating, and maybe that was the leverage, but when they returned to Indiana— Kelly surprised Detective Ogden by fleeing from Indiana to Wingo, Kentucky, where she was actually caught and arrested for homicide and other charges. I think they realized, yeah, we can't we can't leave her out there anymore. So Kelly's arrested and Detective Ogden once again comes to interview her when she reveals that she had a pact with her husband that since she had an affair, she would have to kill the man with whom she had an affair. But she claimed she couldn't do it because she loved Chris, but knew that Jason was going to kill Chris and she helped him set it up by inviting Chris over the house to be murdered. This is this is okay. her new story. Mm-hmm. Shortly after this admission, Kelly was transferred back to Michigan and she agreed to par- participate in that documentary, Dead North. Again, oh, our listener, Susan, thank you for recommending it. It was really good. It was, I think, a four-parter. <laughs> I think Michelle and I stayed up like What's really it late. on Netflix? I think I'm almost positive we bought it on Prime. Mm-hmm. Kelly also agreed again to try to help the police locate Chris's remains. So once again, they went out to the trail with dogs. This time, one of the dogs alerted to human remains. The police found a black garbage bag where the dog alerted, but it was empty. But the dog hit again on another area nearby. And in that spot, the police found Chris Regan's skull. So now they're getting some remains here. Kelly also helped police find the gun that was used and a pair of forceps in her house that she used to try and remove the bullet from Chris Regan's skull. (sighs) This item tested positive for Regan's blood, and it was overlooked, Amy. This is the incredible thing. It was overlooked in multiple searches. It seemed like an error because it was kind of in plain sight. Hmm. Not sure why it was never taken in. I mean... Any reason that someone would have forceps not in the medical field? Well, I'll try not to worry, but James has some that he uses during fly fishing. So Uh, there are other reasons. (laughs) Okay. Um, So that's maybe why the police overlooked it. They didn't. Yeah, no. I mean, it just seemed like something I might have taken in, but okay. I mean, maybe they didn't think it was relevant. And unbelievably, while working on the documentary in October 2017, recreating where the police found Chris Regan's remains that they had found, the cameraman made a gruesome discovery that sent everyone into shock and elicited visceral screams from the crew. So what was this discovery you were going to ask me? It was Chris Regan's lower jawbone. What? Yes, they discovered it in this area even after this area was searched several times. I mean, at first they didn't know who. I was going to say, I'm assuming they tested it. Yeah, they tested it and they matched it. Oh my goodness. I I mean, I couldn't, I couldn't imagine. Is that in the documentary? You like hear them scream? There's something about it. I just don't remember if you actually hear the screams. But you know something Someone maybe recreated it. Mm -hmm. Kelly was held on $5 million bond after having pled not guilty to the charges. 
and she was not able to make her bail. So she spent the time prior to trial in jail. And she's still not being charged with Jason's death, I'm assuming. She was arrested for homicide of Chris Regan, but Mm -hmm. she was not charged yet with Jason's death. All right. Kelly's trial began on Valentine's Day 2017 in Michigan, and this was for the murder of just Chris Regan. I don't mean just. Yeah. Not for Jason. Mm -hmm. Her defense was that of fear, that she was afraid Jason would kill her if she ever turned on him. Shockingly, but not so surprising, given Kelly's attitude, she took the stand in her own defense, describing violence that Jason had perpetrated on her. But the jury did not buy it, and Kelly was found guilty on all charges involving the homicide of Chris Regan, and there was just palpable relief Mm -hmm. from everyone who knew him. Kelly received a sentence of life and will never be eligible for parole. Kelly was not charged with the murder of her husband, Jason. But in another surprising turn of events in the story, Kelly's own brother came forward claiming that there were other victims and that his sister might actually be a serial killer. Her brother, Colton, claimed that there might be as many as nine other men who died because of her involvement with them. But this has not ever been verified. Kelly said that she she had all these butterfly tattoos, and she said that the butterfly tattoos represented people she lost in her life. So, you know. How many does she have? 14. Interesting. Mm -hmm. And how many people did she lose that, you know, family and friends were aware of? That's a good question. She admitted that there were bodies across other states. They suspected that this this had happened before because these two seemed to be pretty good at, you know, the, the, the planning, the cleanup. In a phone call recording between Kelly and her mother, Kelly's mother confronted her on killing other people. And Kelly didn't deny it. You know what she said? What? I've always been like this, mom. <laughs> so did she ever admit to killing Jason or it's just speculation? All right. Hold on. Okay. Is Kelly Cochran, is she a serial killer? Is she a psychopath? She said that she doesn't have remorse or sadness and that she was born this way. She finally confessed, just so you know, to killing her husband in 2018. I don't think there was any incentive. I just I was going to ask if she got anything out of it. No, she didn't. I think she just knew, you know, she was done for anyway. She's probably proud of it. She's a psychopath. Maybe she wanted attention. Mm -hmm. Maybe, you know, there's all sorts of reasons why people plead guilty. But she confessed. She pled guilty and she received an additional 65 years in prison. Kelly also admitted to authorities later on that she killed her husband, Jason, out of revenge for the murder of Chris Regan. She seemingly wanted to be with him, but he had, Chris Regan had really rejected her. He was leaving. So it seemed that Kelly loved Chris. He didn't love her. She was mad. I think that she instigated the murder out of revenge. But then, and Jason loved her so much that he... I think Jason loved her so much that he was willing to kill for her, but I don't think he was the driving force. But then she was mad at him and... You know, I don't think she wanted to be with Jason anymore anyway. So she kills him. I mean, this is one of those crazy cases. All right. So let's talk about theory here. All right. Any thoughts about your uh, explanations about her? I don't know very much about her background. Okay. So I'm curious if you know more about her background or if you drew some conclusions based on the little that we do know. I'm able to draw conclusions based on her behavior because she's a clear example of a psychopath. Okay, let's hear it. I mean, we know that um, female psychopathy isn't always easy to measure. And it's not exactly the same as male psychopathy, but there are many of the traits are similar. And Kelly has almost all of these traits. I mean, she doesn't have normal feelings. She does not feel empathy. She does not feel sympathy. She does not feel remorse. She led a parasitic lifestyle. She also demonstrated, you know, she was uh, manipulative. She lied. She was superficially charming, friendly, outgoing. She she really has almost every trait. Parasitic lifestyle, how so? I didn't hear much in your description of her that would, I mean, I know you probably read more in the case than you reported. Well, I guess when I say parasitic lifestyle, I mean, you know, harming other people. Okay. Living uh, kind of li- like not minding the, the damage that she caused to okay. other people in their I lives. I probably was thinking of it more literal. Oh, okay. <laughs> no, meaning like because we've had cases where we talk about people who live these parasitic lifestyles and it's more about using people for things. I guess she was. Used- I think she did use people for things. Yeah. You know, for her, for attention, yeah. for revenge. I think she did. Mm-hmm. So I think she still fits in that category. You know, one of the main differences between male and female psychopaths, which would not really apply to well it does somewhat apply to kelly but the main difference is usually one of physical nature meaning that male psychopaths will be physically aggressive and commit those kind of acts where females are less likely to commit these acts of brutality they usually female psychopaths are using like relational Mm -hmm. manipulation and Mm -hmm. emotional manipulation if that makes sense Mm -hmm. 
Um, in this case, you know, Kelly was involved in a violent crime too. So you're right. We don't know her full childhood history, but she also does have signs because one of the signs of psychopathy is also early juvenile behavior. Bad, mm-hmm. you know, and her mom said that, you know, there was, yeah. I don't know what the behavior was exactly, mm-hmm. but I think this is correct. So I suspect that, you know, she had this behavior. I suspect her life, she would have continued to live this type of lifestyle. Well, it sounds like she was having an affair with multiple men. She could have killed them all. That's correct. If she was never caught. Was Chris the only one or was she going to continue on a path where every time a man, Mm -hmm. you know, every time someone betrayed her or, you know, she felt betrayed or Or she didn't get what she wanted? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that she absolutely would have continued to live this lifestyle. I think she was and is a serial killer. Even if you look at the definition um, of serial killing right now, it's two victims or more, which I don't think is appropriate. I think it should be three. When did it go to two? Well, it's going to be changed again, I think. It'll, it's going to go back to three. Two has a very different implication. Doesn't really... Um, but the cool down period is still part of the definition. No. What? I always thought it was three or more. And a cool down, I always tell my students, if you look at spree murder versus mass murder yeah, versus no. serial murder, the cool down period is like the primary... They changed it. <laughs> and they're going to change it again. I know it's hard. You got to keep up with it. Everyone better read for themselves. So can you please tell me the current definition? The current definition is two or more victims in different places. How is that not a spree killing then? It could be. I think they got rid of the term spree kill. They don't look at spree killing anymore. I don't like this. I, oh, okay. Actually, we spoke with an expert, Catherine Ramslin. Mm-hmm. She's one of the like leaders in this area. Yeah. And she is very much also objects to this much more narrow um, definition. So would she or you agree that the cooldown period is a primary characteristic in serial offending? Well, I don't know if she would agree, yeah. but you know what? It's a slippery slope. I'm yeah. not sure. I don't know what... Also, because how much of a cooldown period are we talking about? It is subjective because spree killing and serial killing is very, uh, you know, it's it's hard to differentiate. I think so. I'm, I'm not sure where I stand on it, to be honest. I don't think it's necessary, to be honest. And I also never taught about spree killing that way. Point being, I think Kelly Cochran is <laughs> and would be. Would or at least would have continued to become a serial killer. Either if not way, already. she's very bad, <laughs> regardless of what we call her. She's in the right place. She's in the right place. So what happened afterwards, after Kelly was sentenced? Well, Chief Laura Frizzo was fired in 2016 by the city manager, David Thayer, due to, quote, different management styles and irreconcilable differences. Hmm. Odd. We don't, I don't know the politics behind that. Smells like scandal to me. And Laura Frizzo filed a suit against Thayer involving gender discrimination, but that suit was dismissed, which doesn't mean that it wasn't true or, you know, we don't know the reasons why it was dismissed. David Thayer would later resign himself in 2020 following some of his own legal issues involving Security Act violations. These were not terribly serious, but they forced him out of a previous position, it seemed. Mm. So he had some legal trouble. But in a very movie-like twist, Amy, Laura Frizzo and Jeremy Ogden, remember the other detective, Mm -hmm. wound up falling in love and became a couple. Oh, that's nice. You know, I thought it was too. And they both still work in law enforcement and they were both instrumental in putting Kelly Cochran behind bars for the rest of her life. Wonderful. So I don't think that we need to talk about whether or not the criminal justice system got it right. No, I think they did a great job. I think so as well. But you know, it's interesting. If it wasn't for Frizzo and Ogden leading it, would Kelly have continued on? I I think so. Yeah. I think people like her continue till they get caught or die. I think so too. So yes, Kelly Cochran is absolutely in the right place and she will remain there for the rest of her life. So justice is served, even though you can never get back your loved ones. Nope. All right. And before we leave today, Amy, we have a number of questions from patrons. We do. I think this might be the most we've ever had. We have six questions. Okay. So if you don't like questions, thanks for joining <laughs> us. <laughs> but if you if you do, stick around. Yes. Amy, why don't you kick it okay. off? Okay. All right. So Michelle wants to know, what do you think happened to Maura Murray? Mm. So our good buddies over at Crawl Space did a very in-depth series on this case, mm-hmm. which I've listened to. And, you know, Megan, I don't know. But if I had to say, I think she may have left on her own accord or was planning on leaving on her own accord when she was maybe met with foul play. Yeah. Such a tragic case. I keep hearing that they're getting closer to figuring out what happened. But I feel like over the years that has happened. But I really hope that this poor family does get some justice for 
and find out what really happened. Well, there it was a motorist that spotted her, right? So she told people, you know, she was in a school and she left nursing school and said, you know, there's a death in the family. So mm-hmm. she was going to be gone for a week. Mm-hmm. So that indicates and she had packed up a bunch of stuff. Right. So that indicates that she was planning on going somewhere. She mm-hmm. also made phone calls to inquire about places to stay in Vermont, which was an area where her family often vacationed. Okay. So it seems as if she was planning on going somewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, those close to her did not know anything about this trip, though. She was on the side of the road. A motorist asked if she needed help. She said she had help coming. And then she just seemingly vanished. Right. And, you know, there's obviously more to the story. But since we have six questions, well, you know, we'll stop it there. I mean, definitely she met with foul play. I just don't know how or what, you know, I still wouldn't know. It's one of those mysteries. you know, some people say she wanted to disappear and that she did. I don't believe that whatsoever. Yeah. I just want you to know. Okay, Megan, can you read the second question? Nicole would like to know, has anyone utilized non-insane automatism as a defense successfully? There's the concept of insane automatism, which is when you enter a dissociative state and commit a crime, you know, that is something that happens naturally or something from internally. But the idea of non-insane automatism is that you enter some type of dissociative state through something external. So you so prob- like our Ambien cases fall yes, under that? Yes, exactly. Okay. So, you know, people who have taken Ambien and then woken up and they had no idea they committed a crime. Now, this is a very complicated question. What I can tell you offhand is that I know several cases in which this has been raised. Nicole, depends on how you define success. So when I look at success, I don't know offhand of any outright acquittals, but I definitely know cases in which it was a mitigating factor and the defendants received lesser sentences. Mm -hmm. So you might argue that's successful in that way. And Nicole, thank you for bringing that up because that's got me thinking we should cover a case in which this was brought up. Right. All right. What is the best gift you have ever been given? And Sally asked this because she was given a llama rather than a car on her 16th birthday, which is so awesome. <laughs> is that awesome? So it's like I wanted a pony. Yeah, I got a llama. Do you know how much I love llamas? I yeah. send you like those a funny lot, pictures. The They're so cute. You have a picture of a llama in your office or you used oh, to. Oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, it was right behind my Zoom. Yeah. So we're both going to take this one, Megan. Mm-hmm. I will say that, listen. I'm going to think of a gift as a material item because otherwise I would say family, I would say mm-hmm. children, but let's right. think of it as a material item. Right. I was going to say my grandma's ring because okay. um, Alan used it to propose, but then I thought of something that just occurred to me that I absolutely love. My brother bought me a journal. It's called A Line a Day. So I've always journaled since I was like seven years old, but oh. as life gets crazier, I don't have time. Oh. So it's called a line a day and it's literally like three lines. So every day for my whole life, I've pretty much been just writing like a little tidbit. Oh, really? Yeah. And I just, I think it's really cool because I don't have time to journal. That's cool. But now I can have every day just something written. So try to beat that. Well, I'm actually going to go with your original answer (laughs) and I'm going to say my grandmother's ring. So my parents gave that to me for my 18th birthday. It was her diamond for when she got married. Mm. It's been in my family for well over 100 years. And so it, it carries very significant meaning to now, me. Now, can you wear it or are you allergic to it? I can't wear it. I am pretty much allergic to it. But at I'm least you have it. to all jewelry, but it doesn't. Yeah, it means so much to me just Aww. to have it. That's that's beautiful. No, oh, thank you. Priscilla wants to know, do you believe in the supernatural slash paranormal? Absolutely. I'm going to say absolutely not. Really? Yeah. Oh. Absolutely not. But I hope no ghosts get mad at me for saying that. I can't actually support it with what specifically I believe but I definitely believe that we are we are among the supernatural without you, a doubt. You watch a lot of those kind of movies. That's probably why I yep. believe that, but I still believe. <laughs> yes. Okay, now this is from Kristen and her boyfriend, Scott, the one who's a new defense lawyer, which we love. Mm-hmm. Question is, in terms of lawyer performance in cases, what are some of the most egregious issues you have seen? Oh, I'm going to say lawyers being drunk on the job. It's pretty bad. Falling asleep. Um, I'm going to say that, but I'll also say uh, some Brady violations. I'm sorry. Lawyer performance doesn't mean only defense attorney. Okay. I was thinking of it from the defense side, but from the prosecution side, yes. Brady, there's been some really bad um, Brady. I mean, some of the worst Brady has been a written confession from the actual person who did it while someone's wrongfully convicted languishing in prison. Mm-hmm. I've also seen just, you know, there are cases where I... I can't even think of them specifically, but I can think of cases where it was very lazy lawyering. And so, oh, you know, we did enough. We met the bar. We, mm-hmm. And this is this came from a couple of defense cases we covered. We thought we met the bar for creating reasonable doubt. And I would say, look, if you have the resources and not all, not all defense attorneys do, as you know, as public defenders. But if you do have the time and the resources, I don't think it's enough to just meet the bar. Go further. Yep. This is the most important thing you can do is defending someone's 
you know, rights. Yeah. So, so that was your advice part? I think that's my advice okay. part. So my advice part, because I always think it's interesting in defense, it doesn't actually matter if your client is innocent or guilty. You're actually better off not even knowing because it's really about your job as a defense attorney is to make sure your client's constitutional rights are protected, correct? I've spoken to many defense attorneys that have a lot of trouble when they really believe in their client's guilt mm -hmm. and they've had sometimes that clouds their vision of what their job mm -hmm. is. The only other advice I would give would be for prosecution. If we were talking about the prosecution is to, you know, understand how much power you have mm -hmm. and try to please exercise it as fairly mm -hmm. as possible and really look for justice. Yep. Now, this is from sweet nine-year-old Kaylin Ray, Emily Lynn's daughter, mm -hmm. and she wants to know, what do you think of little kids that are five or six and get arrested? Can they be helped so that they can grow up to be better? Oh, my gosh. So sweet. You're on the right track there, Kaylin Ray. And yes, absolutely. Yes. I don't think any child should be arrested at that age. No, I don't either. I, I think anyone can be helped. And it's it's just a matter of how much help they need. And do we give them the right kind of help? I think that's totally true. But I also, children are more amenable to help because it's before you've developed into an adult pattern of, you know, crimes or, you know, even the, the attitude or the mindset. So yes, five and six-year-olds should not be arrested, but young children who are arrested and commit crimes can absolutely be rehabilitated. Yes, and it's our jobs as adults to see that that happens. Yes. All right, everyone. Thank you so much for those very interesting questions. We appreciate them, and we will catch you next time on Women in Crime. Women in Crime is written and hosted by Megan Sachs and Amy Schlossberg. Our producer is James Varga, edited by Jose Alfonso. Music composition is by Dessert Media. If you enjoy the show, please remember to subscribe and leave a review. You can also support the show through Patreon, where you can get access to additional ad-free content such as virtual happy hours and an extra full-length episode each month. For more information, visit patreon.com slash womenincrime. Sources for today's episode include the docuseries Dead North, The Rolling Stone, The Iron Mountain Daily News, and Psychology Today. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.